Welcome to Radio Finance, the podcast that helps you understand the transformative developments taking place in the world today. Good morning and good afternoon and welcome to the Asian Banker Radio Finance. Today we're very excited that we'll be turning to our panel of senior and chief economists as well as banking industry experts to look at some of the key issues and factors that will affect the global economy, financial system, and specifically how the banking system in Asia Pacific will perform over the next 12 months. According to the International Monetary Fund, or IMF, global growth is forecasted to slow from 3.2% in 2022 to under 3%, 2.7%, in 2023. This is the weakest growth profile since 2001, except for periods during the global financial crisis and the acute phases of the COVID-19 pandemic where growth has slowed even further. Now for our panel discussion, uh, we want to start with uh, the economic outlook, right? On Give us a take on Asia Pacific growth and risk that you see this year, starting with John. Uh, I will start with China. As we all know, China has ended its zero uh, zero COVID policy. Uh, it, it, all indications are uh, pointing to the fact that uh, the country is opening up, like in cities in Beijing, Shanghai. So I think this is a very good sign. Um, you know, from what I have read, uh, the peaks of inflect the infection in China have already passed actually in major cities. Um, so, so I think um, you know the, the China's economy is uh, slated to uh, come back strongly. Uh, as we all know, typically after a pandemic, particularly after pandemic for such a long time, you know, three years right now, usually there is going to be a very strong rebound, as we have witnessed, for example, in the 1918-1919 Spanish flu. Uh, and, and the rebound is actually not just strong, but also for a fairly long time. China is noticeably different from North America, as well as from European Union. Um, you know, the, the, the recession in the U.S., for example, is purely driven by the interest rate hikes. Um, and and um, uh, in, in China, we don't have this kind of a situation. The inflation is very low, around like 2%. So the central government has a lot of leeway in terms of using the monetary policy as well as fiscal policy to stimulate the economy. The, the problem with Chinese economy is insufficient demand. So uh, it, it's going to take some time for demand to come back as the, you know, the fiscal money uh, in, still into the economy start to percolate down to people's pockets. China's economy is relatively in good shape. Now, I, I'm a little bit more conservative. I think we probably, you know, if, if you ask me to forecast a number, I would put a number at around 5%. I want to hear from you about uh, how you see the Asia-Pacific uh, economy doing. Uh, now that you know, China is, is back on track. Uh, if we were to look at the ASEAN space uh, and uh, you know South Asia as well, um, I think few themes that will play out this year. Uh, I think first of all is the change in the growth mix. I think what China is going through this year uh, is something that the ASEAN region went through last year, which is that reopening, uh, you know, boost dynamics uh, that helped growth. Uh, and at, apart from that, there was also a um, huge export leg. Uh, in fact, the first part of the export like uh, benefited uh, electronic exporters. Uh, that's when you know when, when the pandemic was through and uh, there was a very strong demand improvement uh, for sem uh, semiconductors and uh, consumer electronics. Uh, thereafter, last year we saw the commodity upcycle, 
um, and that helped some other parts of uh, you know the region, namely Indonesia and Malaysia, to start with. So exports were doing well. There was this reopening dynamic, but we go into 2023. Uh, I think we're going to see moderation uh, on on both these uh, fronts. You're not going to see the reopening tailwind anymore. Uh, but that said between exports and domestic, domestic resilience will become very important. But I think generally, you know, 2023 uh, probably will be what I call a comeback year. 2022 was very volatile for markets. Uh, growth uh, was on the down slide from here. Although a lot of the clients that we speak to in recent weeks suggest that a recession is imminent globally. But oh. nevertheless, actually, if you look within ASEAN, I do see pockets of resilience. So although we are expecting a growth slowdown, but I don't think that it's going to be, uh, you know, very, uh, you know, uh, a recession by any means. Uh, the big headwinds for last year, which was really the Russian-Ukraine war, the aggressive monetary policy tightening, and China's zero COVID strategy, now has effectively turned into somewhat of a tailwind for the uh, ASEAN economies, because inflation looks like they have peaked. And because uh, they are stabilizing, uh, central banks are you know probably in the late cycle, they may be pausing sometime uh, towards the middle of this year. And China obviously has announced it's reopening earlier than expected. I do think that they probably will see some stabilization and a pickup uh, in terms of the growth momentum in the second half of this year. Uh, if you look at the Asia Pacific region outside of uh, China, you know the two primary weights on the economy right now are trade and inflation. Uh, trade is actually remarkably weak. So that's a big uh, a weight on all of the, uh, the export-reliant uh, uh, countries of the Asia-Pacific region. Add to that inflation, uh, there's still some issues in terms of managing inflation. So central banks will be cautious. Uh, we're likely to see another hike or two through this quarter into perhaps April uh, uh, of this year uh, before uh, the central banks reach uh, you know, what they call their, their, their terminal rate. My guess is that they stay there and probably follow the lead of the Federal Reserve uh, in, in terms of uh, uh, trying to manage uh, uh, currency values for an exchange over the course of this year. And we'll see some easing of monetary policy late in the year or early uh, uh, next year. I, I do wonder, uh, in a sense, how quickly uh, China will be able to turn around. I think uh, the consumer side of the Chinese economy will come uh, uh, back very strong. We've seen that everywhere in the world that comes out of, uh, of COVID. Um, I'm not so sure uh, how strong the ultimate growth rate for next year can be if the housing market, the property development market, uh, isn't uh, stabilized and actually get, get back on its feet and we see construction activity uh, return to China. How do you see that impacting credit in, in the banking industry around uh, in China and around the region? Well, certainly the, the, the turnaround uh, uh, will help the, uh, uh, the banking industry. And I think particularly if... Um, the efforts uh, right now to try to provide additional liquidity to the property development sector means that construction that has been stalled actually works towards more of a completion. And that means that uh, buyers who have been boycotting payments because they haven't uh, seen any any uh, progress on their units uh, will actually begin uh, uh, mortgage payments again. That certainly helps in terms of the banking industry being able to turn around and 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 uh, lend further and manage their balance sheets in a more appropriate way. Uh, before we move to the next question, maybe uh, uh, for John to talk, talk about you know, China, right? The, that uh, issue on real estate, you know, is, is how 
how the economy globe you know, uh, with the current uh, restrictions there in the real estate sector. Um, and I think what's uh, significant is that it seems to me the Chinese government has taken a almost like a 180 degree turn uh, in the last few months with respect to this industry. Um, and I think um, you know the government realizes that uh, the importance of this industry in driving economic growth, the, 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 the huge risk associated with you know seeing this industry go down the drain. I, I think there, there will be a lot of cooperation from various levels of the government to help the industry. Uh, the, you know, the, 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 the blue state scenario for the real estate industry in China is very much premised upon demographics trend in the future. Right? The, the notion that each household owns one house, okay? Uh, it doesn't have to be like this. Um, you know, already there are government officials in China advocating, I mean, advocating people, households to buy more than just one uh, one housing unit. So, so I think uh, probably we're gonna see something along that line uh, in terms of uh, uh, boosting demand, uh, in terms of uh, finding uh, policies to help uh, real estate companies. Um, it's still, you know, it's a very large component of GDP. I think it's about like a 30% of GDP. So, um, you know, I don't expect this to this industry to grow uh, anymore, but at least to maintain a current level. Yeah, I want to point out one factor that may uh, be uh, important in terms of uh, posing a risk uh, to China's economic growth. That has to do with the China-U.S. relations. You know, we, we are starting to see this decoupling going on. Uh, and this decoupling started out in the very high end of the technology sector. And I do see um, a, a trend towards broadening um, the scope of this essentially export control from the United States. Um, and, and you look at the you know, expanding entity list at the Commerce Department, for example. Um, and I think um, you know, the trend towards that will eventually uh, make a huge um, uh, factor in, in terms of driving, you know, foreign companies operating in China uh, to be, if not already starting, but at least contemplating moving out of China. Um, this is a huge risk in my view. Um, and I think the, the Chinese government is cognizant of that and, and trying to find ways to um, assuage the fact of this. Now, I know Moody just came out a report I saw uh, of technology fault line because of geopolitical tension. Uh, 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 Stephen, could you comment on this? And what's the greatest, greater impact, uh, not just to China, but the, the, the region? One way to look at this is to think of decoupling as being driven by two different forces. And I think private investment, uh, rightly so, is simply trying to uh, uh, move away from the concentration risk of having everything in, in one place. And I think in a sense that's natural, and particularly mm -hmm. as other countries become competitive uh, with China, uh, in terms of labor force skills and in terms of the, the willingness uh, uh, to accommodate uh, uh, this kind of investment, uh, uh, that that that's very natural. Not that there is a, an exodus out of China, but there is a, simply a, a, a diversification of supply chains and a little bit of a reduction of that concentration risks. Now, because of that, uh, uh, no, I, I've spoken to some bankers, they, they call it the ring of China, right? This whole uh china plus one and uh, obviously some countries some markets in in uh, asia specifically what have been uh, the net impact of that uh, for the region as, as a whole but that also ties into what i see as the key risk for china uh it's the domestic confidence that really matters because last year 
household deposit savings was very, very high. You're talking about 17.8 trillion uh, renminbi, way in excess of the 10 trillion that we saw the year before. So the reason for this excessive savings suggests that you know consumer confidence is weak and they're rather safe rather than spend. So now that we are having a reopening, the question is whether they're going to deploy some of these savings back into the consumer spending. Now, uh, we kind of switch here back to the banking industry. We, we talk a lot about uh, a new competition within the industry. But before that, uh, Stephen, if you could also talk to us about the credit uh, outlook for the banking industry in Asia Pacific. Uh, our outlook, of course, is, is that interest rates uh, will uh, 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 inflation will peak this year and that monetary policy will begin to ease late this year, early next year. If I'm looking at a macroeconomic perspective and the cost of funds, the rising cost of funds that banks have faced over the last uh, uh, two years, uh, that at least that is period is just about over. Uh, and it, things it, I think will I think we have to think about this year as being a, a transition year as um, monetary policy rates level off. Uh, and probably stay at a terminal rate uh, through much of this year before beginning to come down next year. So uh, uh, cost of funds will still remain uh, somewhat high for the, the, the next year. And, and in terms of you know, asset quality, you know, uh, specific markets, um, do you see the industry overall resilient? I think for the banking sector in general, um, most of the countries they have gone into this crisis with, uh, with an you know, uh, with their books in fairly good condition. Mm. Uh, but of course, in the first two years, you've seen the governments uh, provide a lot of, um, uh, you know, help as well to the industry, to the corporates. Now that the economies are fully open and many of these support measures are taken off, there could be some impact on the bank banks' books as well. A rising interest rate environment, or if the Central banks like the Fed is going to hike and then uh, pause at relatively high levels. Uh, typically, that is beneficial for NIM. But I also recognize that you know the environment is one where growth is slowing quite dramatically, especially in the developed world. And that is of concern, of course, to this part in Asia because a lot of our growth and trade is tied to the major markets. And then if you look in terms of trading activities, actually volatility is our friend, right? The more volatile mm, the markets, yes. the wider the spreads you can charge. And uh, there is probably a greater churn in terms of the uh, investment and hedging ideas. But on the loan portfolio side, I think uh, the risk is, of course, um, because of the growth slowdown, uh, you know, uh, you may actually get more distress uh, situations arising or, you know, defaults or bankruptcies. And that's something that is uh, usually a kind of like a train wreck. It takes a bit of time for it to develop. So I think, you know, there's some recognition that in the equity market, the downward earnings revision haven't fully reflected some of that mm -hmm. corporate uh, story yet. So I would say overall is uh, relatively resilient, I would say on a whole for the Asia uh, banking industries. But there are some of these, uh, you know, factors that we have to consider. Earlier, we, we talked about increasing competition from digital fintech and uh, decentralized uh, finance players. Uh, how do you see that unfolding in 2023? Uh, mm. In the banking sector, there's these huge waves of megatrends that, that are just coming in to, to disrupt uh, banks around the region. Uh, there's a couple of things that I'm watching quite closely. Uh, one of them is this concept of machines as customers. And mm -hmm. that's going to radically change the way that financial services organizations are interacting with the world around them. And if we think about this in a little bit of detail, 
it's no surprise because over the last few years, we've seen what I like to call a Cambrian explosion in the amount of intelligent devices that we have uh, available to us, available to consumers, uh, and also within uh, within other organisations as well. So this puts a lot of pressure, of course, onto the financial services sector to be able to respond to this challenge. Uh, and I think they're doing this quite well. Uh, the way that we're seeing this expressed is typically with a lot of investment around automation technologies, uh, and in particular, artificial intelligence. And I think we've learned a lot about AI in the last few weeks as well uh, with this headline grabbing chat GPT that we're seeing. The level of intelligence that we're starting to see uh, exhibited by these AI creations is is actually quite phenomenal. Um, So banks, of course, are are now responding to this. Uh, Lots of investment around people, around data science, uh, and also around the backend infrastructure to be able to support this because large amounts of transactions that were typically occurring uh, between a human being uh, and the bank are now machine to machine initiated. Uh, the other thing that we're looking at, of course, is this concept of DeFi. Uh, I think the banks themselves uh, are going to start investing uh, quite heavily in, in finding out how they can themselves uh, decentralize and still be able to remain uh, interconnected in, in the, the broader ecosystem of the financial services industry. So I uh, expect to see a lot of spending around research and development within this space. There's a lot going on in the banking space, a lot of really interesting uh, advancement taking place. And it makes me wonder whether banks today are more like financial, uh, more like technology companies that have a banking license uh, than the other way around. Uh, to conclude, uh, uh, like to, uh, everyone to kind of talk about the, the one key trend and one key risk that you'll be watching out in 2023. I think in general, 2023 would be a good year. In oh. terms of the risk, I, I would uh, uh, refer to something I'm not, refer- I'm not uh, an expert in. That is the variant of the new pandemic, um, of this new virus. I hope it's not going to evolve into something big. I hope we're going to say goodbye to this for good. And uh, mm. other than that, I'm all optimistic for, for this year. But I think inflation uh, cyclically is going to come down uh, this year, again, because of high base effect. And like I mentioned earlier, mm. it's that COVID inflation followed by conflict inflation. Uh, but I, we do think uh, if we look another, you know, uh, five, five, eight years into the horizon, uh, there are uh, bigger structural factors that could keep inflation as a recurring problem. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. things like climate, uh, you know, natural disasters, you've seen actually green tech, if, if there is a policy push to uh, move from fossil to green tech, at this point, it's still quite expensive. So you could have an underlying price pressure from there as well. Okay, so what I think will be quite transformative is actually the lessons we have learned over the last three years from the pandemic, that actually we should expect disruption, whether it's mm. from viruses or whether it's from uh, geopolitical conditions or war, whatever is the case. So it means that actually we have to be fairly nimble and agile and be prepared for black swan event. I want to touch on ESG as well. And and I, I kind of think it's something of a double-edged sword. There's a lot of opportunity, but there, there, there is a lot of headwind with ESG. Um, you know, banking, uh, financial services organizations are looking to decarbonize at the moment. Um, and the way that we can look at this is to see the big shift between 2022 and 2023, where the ESG conversation was largely held by the C-suite. Uh, you know, it was aspirational, if you will. Uh, 2023, it seems to have you know broken the bounds of, of the C-suite and moved into the M-suite. 
Uh, and we know once managers uh, get involved, that means KPIs are attached. And we're seeing some real action around ESG within financial services organizations. Thank our panelists for your insights and your analysis. And we hope that our audience have found this session insightful and useful. We wish you all a good day. And again, uh, thank you to all our panelists. Thank you for listening to Radio Finance. For more content, visit the Asian Banker website and follow us on social media.